Okay, now we continue with the discussion of the Chula Satchika Sutta. And last week we came to the point in the Sutta <laughs> where Satchika, after he had made at the beginning a very proud and boastful claim that he would be able to overthrow and, and refute in debate any recluse, any recluse or Brahmin. Now he has gotten into a debate with the Buddha, a debate that centers on the question of anatta or non-self, and the Buddha has overthrown his position. And earlier, Satchika had claimed that if he were to engage any monk or recluse in debate, he would make him shake and tremble and sweat under the armpits. And now the Buddha has come to the debate completely unshaken and Satchika has been shaking and shivering and trembling and sweating all over. Okay, that's, and the Buddha points this out, and Satchika sits there, silent, dismayed, with soldier, shoulders drooping, his head down, glum, and without response. That's where we came last week. That's the end of paragraph 22. And now in paragraph 23, one of the Lichavis, the people of Vesali, says to the Buddha, he says that a simile occurs to me, and the Buddha asks him to relate that simile. And he gives the simile of a case of a crab which might be living in a pond <coughs> near some village or town, then a group of boys and girls go from this town or village to the pond and they pull the crab out from the water, put it on dry land, and whenever the crab extends a leg, then they cut it off, break it and smash it with sticks and stones that the crab would lose all of its legs. It's a rather cruel, cruel simile. And then the, with all of its legs broken, the crab is unable to get back to the water. And so the Lichavi says that all of Satchika's contortions, wreathings and vacillations that seems to mean all of his attempts to uh, wiggle out of difficulties in the debate, you know, to go from one position to another, trying to defend himself in one way or another, all of his escape routes have been blocked off and he's just been utterly defeated by the Buddha in the debate. And then Satchika 
intervenes and he cuts off Dumuka the Lichavi. He must be rather embarrassed and he doesn't want this Dumuka to elaborate the simile any further. And now he's perhaps with something of a shame face. He says to the Buddha, forget about that previous talk of mine. That was just mere prattle. And now he asks a question politely and respectfully. It's actually a question very similar to that which he originally asked the Buddha when he was trying to lure the Buddha into a debate. He says, in what way is a disciple of the recluse Gotama one who carries out his instructions who responds to his advice, who has crossed beyond doubt, become free from perplexity, gained intrepidity or fearless or complete confidence, and become independent of others in the dispensation of the master, or the teacher's dispensation. Earlier, at the very beginning of the debate, Satchika had asked the Buddha, this goes back to paragraph 9, he says, how does Master Gotama discipline his disciples and how is Master Gotama's instruction usually presented to his disciples? And then the Buddha says that he usually presents his instruction to his disciples in terms of contemplating the five aggregates as impermanent and contemplating them as not-self. And now Satchika in this, uh, this paragraph, number 24, is really asking in effect what seems to be very much the same question but just now it's from the perspective of how a disciple puts that teaching into practice rather than how the Buddha instructs the disciple. And I think the way this question of Satchika is framed in this particular passage, I don't think Satchika would have really used those same words since this is the standard description that we come across in the text of a sotapanna. And in many other texts we find the Buddha using the same words to describe a sotapanna. So it really seems impossible that Satchika could have thought of those same words on his own. I think Satchika might have phrased the question simply by asking how does a disciple of the Buddha carry out his instructions or how does he practice his teaching. Then the ancient monks who codify the teaching in order to fix it in a form for easy memorization would have taken that standard description of the stream enterer and put it in here. Okay, and when the Buddha answers, again he 
picks up on the same theme of the earlier part of the discourse, that is the teaching of anatta or non-self. But now he shows the way the teaching of non-self is put into practice by a disciple who is at the level of a stream enterer or even at the higher stages of the path, short of arahatship. He says, here, agivesana, any kind of material form, whatever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near. A disciple of mine sees all material form as it actually is with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. And in the same way he sees any kind of feeling, any kind of perception, any kind of mental formations, any kind of consciousness, whatever. He sees it all with proper wisdom. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. Okay, what is described here is the type of insight or wisdom which is possessed by a disciple who has achieved a breakthrough or penetration into the truth of the Dhamma. Somebody below the level of a stream enterer will also, in practicing the teaching, when he's developing vipassana meditation, then he will contemplate the five aggregates as being not mine, not I, not myself. He'll begin by, after gaining some degree of concentration, attend to the rising and falling away of the five aggregates, observing the body, material form, arising and perishing, arising and perishing. Observing the feelings, one feeling arises, passes away, another feeling arises and passes away, till feelings are just flowing by in this constant flux of impermanence. Then he will attend to perception and see perceptions are impermanent always arising and passing away. The other mental factors, desires, acts of volition, intentions, again, each one arises, is momentarily present, just for a brief moment, then passes away. And consciousness arises, momentarily passes away. So he sees all of these five aggregates as being anicca, impermanent. 
then if he's very sharp, then he doesn't even have to attend to dukkha, but he'll just realize that what is impermanent cannot be truly myself, my real essence, what I truly am. All these five aggregates are just impermanent phenomena, and since they're impermanent, then they're devoid or empty of any kind of inner substance, any solid, immutable substance that I can say, this is truly what I am. This is truly mine. If he doesn't have such sharp wisdom, then he doesn't go directly from impermanence to non-self, but he'll go from impermanence to realize that what is impermanent I cannot control or master so that I can bend it to my will so that I can say let my body be thus let it be always beautiful healthy free from any kind of affliction let it not be thus let my feelings be thus not be thus and so on so he sees that he has no mastery over the five aggregates. Since he has no mastery over them, they are dukkha, really subtle forms of suffering, forms of suffering camouflaged as happiness or pleasure. And since he doesn't exercise this mastery over them, then he doesn't want to cling to them, taking them to be mine, I, and myself. And so he gives up his attachment to them as my, I and myself. Okay, that is the insight of a disciple who is cultivating vipassana meditation, but not yet at the level of stream entry. When he reaches the breakthrough to the level of stream entry, then he acquires what is called the Dhamma Chakku, which means the eye of Dhamma, or the vision of Dhamma, by which he sees the truth of the Buddha's teaching. He actually sees the cessation of suffering, Nibbana, as the end of Dukkha. And with that penetration to the truth of the Dhamma, then he has samapanya, that's proper wisdom, or you could say precise uh, un I missing the exact word. infallible wisdom which sees the truth of anatta, of egolessness. So up to the stage of insight, up to the stage of stream entry while developing insight, he's getting glimpses, deeper and deeper glimpses of anatta. But he does not yet actually have that full penetration with wisdom. But it's with the achievement of stream entry that that 
full and direct, that direct knowledge, direct comprehension of anatta becomes real. And then he has, because of that full penetration of anatta, the first fetter of Sakaya Ditti is eradicated. Up to that stage, even somebody who has very sharp vipassana wisdom still has not yet eliminated Sakaya Ditti. And so he could still have subtle clingings to ideas or views of self. And if he's not firmly established in the Dhamma, then he might even fall away and come to embrace views of self. <coughs> and so it sometimes happens <laughs> that people who maybe traditionally they are brought up as Buddhists but they have don't have a deep understanding of anatta. Even some people who practice vipassana meditation to limited extent, but then if they meet a very impressive guru from a tradition that teaches a doctrine of atman, of atta, and the guru has a very impressive personality, and or else his way of teaching is very convincing, then they might become converted and embrace that teaching and come to recognize that there's some kind of Atman. And so it's only when one reaches the level of Sotapati, of stream entry, that one becomes one who has, as the text says here, who has crossed beyond doubt, become free from perplexity, and gained intrepidity or complete confidence in the teaching of the Master. In that case, the Sremantra has seen the truth of Anatta so clearly that all Sakaya Ditti, personality view, is eradicated and all doubt is eradicated. So he knows that the truth that the Buddha's teaching is the truth. And yet, even though he has that understanding, that realization of anatta, he's not yet reached the end of the road, not yet by a long shot. What is true is that he can never deviate anymore from the saddhamma, from the true teaching, and can never be taken in anymore by any teaching which is based on a self. But the view of anatta or egolessness is a kind of, we can compare it to a machete knife, or like one of these big knives that's used for cutting through the jungle. And still there might be many other kilesas in his mind that have to be cut through to reach the final goal, deliverance, as an arahant. But the view of anatta is like the machete knife, which is sharpened 
to a degree of extreme sharpness, extreme acuity, so that with that knife he just has to go through cutting and slashing his way through the jungle of the mind, then eventually all the defilements will be cut off. And so now, after the Buddha gives this explanation of the disciple who is carrying out the instructions, who is responding to his advice, and who is crossed beyond doubt, now in paragraph 25, Satchika asks another question. He says, Master Gotama, in what way is a bhikkhu an arahant with taints destroyed, who is eliminated, eradicated the asapas, the taints or the corruptions? One who has lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, reached the true goal, destroyed the fetters of being, and is completely liberated through final knowledge. Again, I don't think it likely that Satchika would have asked the question in exactly that way, because this is the standard description that comes in the canonical text of the Arahat. So, to suppose that Satchika would ask the question exactly in that way would mean that we have to suppose that Satchika who comes from a tradition which is completely inimical to the Buddha Dhamma is somehow a very thorough knowledge of the Buddha's text. He probably asks the question, he might have known the distinction between one who is going through the training and one who has completed the training. So in the first case he would have asked, how is a disciple one who is practicing the training and now he's asking, how is a disciple one who has fulfilled the training? Then the ancient monks who established the canon would have put in the standard formula for the arahat there. Now the Buddha's answer here is quite interesting in a certain way. The Buddha says, here Agivesana any kind of material form, whatever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, and so on, a bhikkhu has seen all material form as it actually is with proper wisdom. Thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. And through not clinging, he is liberated. That's anupadaya vimuchati. And then the same thing is repeated for the other four khandas. Now, if we look at the statement, we see that the bhikkhu who is an arahant, that is one who has completed the path, does not see anything different from what the disciple on the path sees. 
what he sees with wisdom is exactly the same thing that the disciple, even who is practicing insight, is seeing somewhat imperfectly and not yet infallibly, and what the stream enterer sees perfectly and, and infallibly. So what he sees, the content of his insight or his vision is the same. So when one is advancing from stream entry up to our hardship, one is not discovering a new Dhamma. There is always at each level the Dhamma is the same. The truth is the same. But what is happening is that the stream enterer gets that essential insight or vision of the truth of the Dhamma so that that vision becomes something which is now implanted within him. As the phrase that we came across says, he is independent of others in the dispensation of the teacher, which means that once he gains that essential insight, he doesn't even have to rely on the Buddha to gain instructions that will teach him something new about the truth of the Dhamma. The truth of the Dhamma is now something which has been, you could say, it's been grafted onto his mind, just the way we might take a branch of a tree, a sapling, and plant it into the ground so that it takes root in the ground and can grow by itself. Or we take Gee, I forgot what it's involved in grafting a plant. One takes off a little piece of the plant and one puts it onto another plant and then it somehow it becomes grafting. grafted onto that. So that essential insight now, you could say it's been taken from the Buddha's wisdom and grafted into the mind of the disciple. So he's now independent of others. He's seen the truth for himself. And as he goes on practicing, he doesn't see at the later stages a different truth. It's the same basic principle of, or principles we could say, of anicca, dukkha, anatta, dependent, arising, the four noble truths. But what happens is that through repeated contemplation, the comprehension of those truths becomes deeper and more complete, more wide-ranging, so that one might be able to see deeper implications of them and they will make a profounder impact on the mind. And as that happens, then, to take up that simile that I used before, it's like using the machete knife to cut through the bamboo growth in the jungle of the mind. One is cutting off the remaining defilements. So at the next stage of, of realization, we be one becomes the once-returner, 
one reduces, weakens the roots of greed, aversion and delusion to the point that one will take rebirth only one more time into this world, the human world or the sense sphere. As one goes on developing the teaching further, then at the next stage of realization, one becomes a non-returner who has cut off permanently the fetters of sense desire and ill will. Then by developing that insight of anatta, of egolessness, still deeper, more deeply, one reaches the final stage of realization where all the remaining fetters are cut off, the fetters of desire for the fine material existence in the Brahma worlds, the desire for existence in the formless or immaterial Brahma worlds, conceit, restlessness, and then the subtlest trace of ignorance. And when that stage is reached, then one says, we say that through not clinging, all upadana or clinging is eradicated and the mind is completely liberated. And so the, so the Buddha says, he says, it is in this way that is by seeing first the reality or the truth of the egolessness, the emptiness, the selfless nature of the five aggregates with right wisdom, proper wisdom. Seeing that first, one cuts through all the defilements of the mind, one uproots all clinging, and the mind is liberated. And such a bhikkhu is an arahant, a holy one, with taints destroyed, who has lived the holy life, done what had to be done, and so on. And he is completely liberated through final knowledge. And now, if we remember at the earlier part of the sutta, when Satchika was making his boastful claim, he was saying that even if I were to meet one who was claiming to be a Samasambuddha, an Arahant, I'm going to make him shake and tremble. Now, the Buddha is going to show Satchika just how deeply immersed he was in delusion when he made that claim. He didn't even have the inkling of what he was up against. It's somewhat like he was somewhat in the position of a man who maybe sees from a distance. He goes to Nepal and he sees Mount Everest from a distance and it doesn't look like such a great mountain and he says, that's nothing. I'm going to go up there and be back in the morning right after breakfast and I'll be down again for lunch. (laughs) 
So he thought that he was able to be, to defeat and debate a Samasambuddha and here he didn't even have even the slightest inkling of the right view that even a beginner on the Buddha's path has, not to speak of one who is a disciple who's unshakable in the training, an arahant who's completed the path, and now the Buddha is going to show him his own status as a samasambuddha. So the Buddha says, he continues, when a bhikkhu's mind is thus liberated, he possesses three unsurpassable qualities. He has unsurpassable vision, that is, unsurpassable wisdom or insight. It's not possible to find any insight, any wisdom, which is truer than the insight or wisdom of an arahant. The arahant has perfect knowledge of all the ultimate truths about human existence. He has unsurpassable practice of the way. That is, he has developed the way or the Noble Eightfold Path all the ways to its culmination. He has not only, we could say, unsurpassable vision is equivalent to samaditi. Samaditi brought to the highest level. Unsurpassable practice of the way, we could say, is the all the other seven factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. So he has perfect morality, perfect concentration, as well as perfect wisdom. And he has unsurpassable deliverance. That is, his mind has been liberated or delivered from all the kilesas, all the defilements all the different asavas, the four cankers or taints have been eradicated. The four types of clinging have been eradicated. The five hindrances are eradicated. The seven latent tendencies are eradicated. The ten fetters are eradicated. Every type of defilement has been cut off all the ways down right to the root level and so thoroughly that it can never spring up again in any way. So such a disciple is utterly liberated from all defilements of the mind and he's also liberated or delivered from samsara, the round of rebirths. You'll never take any new existence in any realm of being within samsara. And yet <coughs> the Buddha and, ye, and yet the <coughs> and yet the Buddha says when a bhikkhu is thus liberated, that is when he is an arahant, 
with this unsurpassable vision, practice, and deliverance, he still honors, respects, reveres, and venerates the Tathagata thus. The Blessed One is enlightened and he teaches the Dhamma for the sake of, enlighten, of enlightenment. The Blessed One is tamed and he teaches the Dhamma for the sake of taming oneself. The Blessed One is at peace and he teaches the Dhamma for the sake of peace. The Blessed One has crossed over and he teaches the Dhamma for the sake of crossing over. The Blessed One has attained Nibbana and he teaches the Dhamma for the attainment of Nibbana. In Pali, the passage is very, very beautiful. I don't remember exactly how it goes. I should have memorized it just before this class. But it goes something like, Buddho Bhagava Bodhaya Dhammang Deseti Danto Bhagava Dhammaya Dhammaya for the sake of taming Dhammang Deseti Santo Bhagava Upasamaya Dhammang Deseti Utino Bhagava Utino Bhagava Taranaya Dhammang Deseti Nibhuto Parinibhuto Bhagava Parinibhanaya Dhammang Deseti And so those monks and not only the monks but bhikkhunis who, well it would only be the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis who would be arahants completely and irreversibly liberated still venerate the Blessed One, the Buddha because he is one who's not only liberated and enlightened himself but he is the one who has discovered the entire path to liberation all by himself without relying upon any outside teacher and he is one who has strived and struggled not in one lifetime alone but out of compassion for the world for all sentient beings for many many aeons to fulfill all of the perfections, the paramis, which will establish him in the position of a samasambhuta, one who is capable of fully fathoming the entire Dhamma and of teaching the path to liberation to the entire world and guiding others along that path so that they can achieve 
the final fruit themselves. And so when even those monks who are arahants venerate the Buddha, <laughs> what is to be said about somebody like <laughs> Satchika, who at the beginning of the sutta was ready to argue the Buddha and try to convert the Buddha away from the Anatta teaching <laughs> and bring him to accept a doctrine of self. <laughs> okay, so when this was said, then Satchika, the Niganta's son, had some... <laughs> now he had some realization of his foolishness and He says to the Buddha, he says, Master Gotama, we were bold and impudent in thinking we could attack Master Gotama in debate. A man might attack a mad elephant and find safety, and yet he could not attack Master Gotama and find safety. A man might attack a blazing mass of fire and find safety, yet he could not attack Master Gotama and find safety. A man might attack a terrible poisonous snake and find safety, yet he could not attack Master Gotama and find safety. We were bold and impudent in thinking we could attack Master Gotama in debate. <clears throat> it's interesting to compare the similes here with the similes that come in paragraph 5 earlier in the Sutta when Satchika was making this claim about what he's going to do if he should meet the monk Gotama and engage him in debate. He said that just as a strong man might seize a ram by the hair and drag him to and drag him fro and drag him round about, so in debate I will drag the monk Gotama to and drag him fro and drag him round about. Then there were I think, three or four other similes like that, all stressing how he's going to demolish the Buddha in debate. <clears throat> and yet here, after admitting his foolishness, he presents a number of similes which show just how inconceivable it is that somebody could attack Master Gotama in debate and find safety. And now, at the end of this discussion, uh, Satchika invites the Blessed One and the Sangha of Bhikkhus to accept the next day's dana offering from himself. And the Blessed One consented in silence. Then Satchika addresses the Lichavis and he says, the monk Gotama together with the Sangha of Bhikkhus has been invited by me for tomorrow's meal. 
you may bring to me whatever you think would be suitable for him. Then, when the night was ended, the Lechavis brought 500 dishes of milk rice, what's called payasa in India, I think, as gifts of food. And Sachika had these various kinds of good food prepared in his own park, and then he announced to the Blessed One that the meal was ready, and the Buddha and the Sangha go to the residence of, or they go to the park of Sachika and they sit down and Sachika serves the Buddha and the monks with his own hands. <coughs> then when the, when the meal is finished, Sachika says to the Buddha, it's an interesting, another interesting statement, he says, Master Gotama, May the merit and the great meritorious fruits of this act of giving be for the happiness of the givers. The point is that Sachika wants the merit of giving to the Buddha and the Sangha to go to all of the Lichavis. But now the Buddha replies, he says, Sachika, whatever, Buddha says, whatever merit or fruits of merit comes about from giving to a recipient such as yourself, one who is not free from lust, not free from hatred, not free from delusion, that will be for the givers, for the lichavis. And whatever comes about, whatever merit or fruit of merit comes about from giving to a recipi recipient such as myself, that is myself or those bhikkhus here who are arahants, those who are free from lust, free from hate, free from delusion, that will be for you. <laughs> so it seems that the, the point of this passage, the Lichavis did not present their gift directly to the Buddha. They presented their gifts of food to Satchika. And so it seems that they will get merit from giving that comes from giving to Satchika. Say they will get merit, but it's not the highest quality of merit which comes from giving to those who are free from greed, hatred, or delusion. And now Satchika himself is the one who arranged this meal offering and apparently it seems to be the case that he took charge of all the food items that were prepared so that he gave all of the food items to the Buddha and the bhikkhus with his own hands and with his own volition. And so he will get the merit 
which comes from giving to those who are free from greed, hatred, and delusion. There is a sutta which comes in the... It comes again in the Majjhima Nikaya towards the back called the Dakineya Vibhanga Sutta. I think you must be familiar with the sutta because I, I imagine that monks when they give sermons after dhanas they often refer to this. <laughs> so anyway, it's, <laughs> it says it's, <laughs> it's sort of like the basic text for giving a sermon on, on the, the fruits, the benefits of giving. That's, in that sutta the Buddha says that the merits that come from giving are based on two essential factors. That is the purity of the recipient and the purity of the donor, of the diaka. So there's a case where the recipient might have low qualities and the donor gives with a low intention. In that case, the merit is not, is of a rather low quality, if we think in qualitative or quantitative terms. Then, there's the case where the merit might be purified, which means that the merit is increased, by the qualities of the recipient but not the qualities or intention of the giver. That is, the giver might be giving just with the thought that he wants to get rid of something or it's good to practice charity or I just have something on hand and I should give to somebody who is requesting or coming on alms round and the recipient might be somebody of very high moral qualities even somebody who is an arahant. So in that case if the giver was a very casual or very casual intention or just with a not fully respectful intention give something, but the receiver is of a very high, high moral stature, then the merit of that act of giving will be increased by virtue of the qualities of the recipient. Then there's a case of giving where the receiver might not be of highly developed moral qualities, of low qualities, but the donor, the dayaka, has a very lofty or noble intention. He thinks that giving is a very worthy act. Giving is an essential virtue of a human being. Giving should be practiced to reduce my own greed and attachment. Giving should be done as an expression of compassion for others. And so, with a lofty intention, one might give something to a recipient who is not of developed moral qualities. In that case, there is a 
high or somewhat purified merit in the act of giving which comes not so much from the qualities of the receiver but from the lofty intention in the mind of the dana, the dayaka. Then there is the fourth case which is the highest type of giving and that is where the donor gives with a lofty intention with a high and developed mind thinking that one should give either out of compassion for others with the intention of purifying one's mind of greed or else recognizing that there are worthy receivers with respect and veneration for the receivers and where those who receive the gift have inner moral qualities which make them worthy of receiving the gifts. In that case, the merit or virtue of the act of giving is of the highest and most refined quality. And that is from the standpoint of merit or punya. So here it seems to be the case that those, the, the lichavis who were giving, were giving to Satchika, who was a, some sort of disputant or wanderer, whose mind was in no way developed along the line of the Dhamma. So he was not free from lust, hate, or delusion. And so they will get merit from giving but their merit is not of the refined quality that comes from giving to those who are free from greed, hatred, and delusion. But since, so that in the case of the Lichavis, their act of giving, their merit, might be refined by their intention, if that is lofty, but not so much by the receiver. But in the case of Satchika, he is giving to the Buddha and the community of monks, which will include many Arahants. So his act of giving will generate the merit that comes from giving to Arahants, merit which is purified by the receiver. And it's interesting to note here that even though Satchika had been defeated in debate by the Buddha, and as a result of the Buddha's argument, Satchika developed very great respect for the Buddha and admiration for him, but he did not become a disciple of the Buddha. He didn't say, Wonderful Master Gotama, wonderful Master Gotama. Um, I go for refuge to the Buddha, for refuge to the Dhamma, for refuge to the Sangha. I, I let the recluse Gotama accept me as a lay disciple who has gone for refuge for life. And also at a later time, the Buddha met Satchika again and also spoke to him a very long discourse 
in which he explained his whole experience as a seeker for enlightenment. But even in that case, at the end of that sutta, Satchika did not become converted and become a disciple of the Buddha. And that raises, in the commentary, the question is raised, why didn't Satchika become a disciple of the Buddha? And the commentary explains, I think, that there was some kind of obstruction in his mind, some impediment, perhaps from previous karma, which prevented him at that time from arousing sadha in the Buddha and accepting the Buddha as his teaching. But still, the, co- the commentary says, the Buddha knew that these discourses that he gave to Satchika would form a powerful impression or a seed in the mind, what's called, the Pali word uses vasana. I don't know if you have the same word in Sinhalese. It means a sort of karmic formation in the mind or a mental impression which will mature at some later time. And so, because of these two discourses, Satchika got that these vasanas imprinted in the mind, and during several centuries later, he became a famous monk in Sri Lanka. I think he's identified... But not Buddhaghosa, no. He was a monk who became an arahant called, I think it's called Kala Buddha Rakita. Excuse me? Kalaka Buddha Rakita, who became a famous preacher and I think an arahant during the days of the Anuradhapura king. Okay, and that takes us to the end of this sutta. Are there any any questions now? Excuse me? I don't think the vasana itself could be called the parami. I think what we can say is that the practice of parami qualities leave vasanas on the mind. So when one practices any of the paramis, like giving or virtue or any of the other paramis, then each act of those paramis leaves a certain imprint or impression on the mind, which then becomes, in a sense, stored up in the mind. It's a potency, yeah. It's a potential or a potency. Suppose it is a good, uh, hungry, great law. Yeah. Just uh, less than what, less than in... Uh, less than... 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 Less than...
that giving to an animal generates less merit than giving to a human being. So in that case, in terms of the recipient or object of the act of giving, the merit would be less. But also, as the same sutta explains, the act of merit is partially determined by the state of mind of the receiver. I'm sorry, of the giver. So if somebody gives to a stray dog or a hungry dog, really out of compassion for that dog with great metta and karuna, then that act of giving will generate a lot of merit. Or if somebody gives to a human being just casually or just to get rid of the person, say a beggar, then because of the intention in his own mind that the merit will be decreased because of the qualities in the mind. I don't know how it works out mathematically. <laughs> and there would have to be some kind of karmic mathematician with a super powerful computer that takes into account all of these different variables and <laughs> figures out how much merit in this case, how much in that. That is true also, yeah. In the case of giving, <laughs> the, the merit depends upon the three, they speak of the three times, or state of mind at the three times. <coughs> Before giving, one should arouse the state of mind of being delighted at the opportunity of giving, and if it's a worthy recipient of respect and veneration for the receivers of the gift, so that one has a very powerful kusalachita before giving, then while giving, one should be giving with the thought of being happy to be giving, or if it's to a poor or destitute person or animal, with compassion for that person or animal while giving. Then afterwards, one should re recollect and reflect on the act of giving and then arouse joy and happiness that one had this opportunity to give. And one doesn't think, now I've given up my favorite, favorite what, clock or my favorite such and such, or I've lost my bank account is diminished by such and such. <laughs> but instead one thinks that if one has very good understanding and very pure motives, then one thinks that giving is a quality that helps me perfect the virtue of parami, of dana. If one still has some degree of calculating self-interest, then one could figure out that by giving I get so much merit which will bring so much benefit in the future. But it's best to give aware of the fruitfulness of the act of giving, but not with an expectation or desire for the fruits. One understands the law of karma, but one also understands that if I'm giving in order to get <coughs> such and such benefits in the future, that's an attachment too. And then the attachment to the benefits that will come 
that will tie me down. So the best way to give is to give aware that the act of giving will bring its benefits and in some extent these material benefits are of value since if we're going to follow the Dhamma it's a benefit to get reborn either in the human world or a Deva world not as an animal, preta, whatever and it's beneficial to be reborn under conditions where one will has at least enough material well-being so that one is not in a constant struggle to eke out one's living day by day and so one can turn one's mind to higher things and where one will have the opportunity to meet the Buddha Dhamma so one wants to get some beneficial results from the giving but one should also be aware that the ultimate purpose of any kind of favorable condition is giving up. One gives as a way of giving up. There's a very nice gatha or series of gathas which come in the Mahanidesa. I just memorized it a few weeks ago. Basically, it says, when the wise practice giving, they do not give with the thought of some upadi in the future. They do not give with the intention of punabhava, the intention of coming back into existence in the future. But rather, when the wise practice giving, they give for the sake of upati sankhaya, for the sake of the destruction of the attachments to existence. And they give for the sake of nupuna bhavaya, for the sake of not coming, for the sake not of puna bhavaya, but for the sake of parichagaya for the sake of patinisagaya, for the sake of relinquishing or giving up. Then again the next verse says, when the wise observe precepts, sila, they do not observe sila for the sake of upadi, for the sake of acquisitions or attachments, or for the sake of a favorable existence in the future. But when the wise observe sila they observe sila for the sake of giving up the upadis the attachments for the sake of freedom from punabhava relinquishment then the wise when the wise practice the jhanas the meditation absorptions they do not do so with the thought of taking rebirth in some Brahma world, but they practice the jhanas again for the sake of giving up the upadis, for the sake of relinquishing attachment to existence. Yeah. 
those chaitanas, those acts of intention that motivated them to prepare the food because it's going to the Buddha, I would say that that would have to be that that chaitana would be very, very powerful, wholesome chaitana because they know that it's going to an enlightened one and to other monks who are liberated. But maybe that chaitana which, with which they actually give the food to Sachika, that chaitana of giving is giving to one who has still loba, dosa, and moha. Yeah. Maybe some Lichavis, because they had a high regard for Sachika. <laughs> or regarded him as their friend. <laughs> but on that point that you raise, I have to admit that there is that consideration that some would have given because they want the food to go to the Buddha. There may be some merit in the actual act of handing it over to the Buddha. Yeah, but it seems that probably every item was handed over by Satchika. It's really impossible to tell because there's no documentation in the rest of this sutta and in the other sutta spoke the other sutta spoken to Sachika, this particular doctrinal question doesn't come up. And some yeah, in some way he got this connection with the Buddha Sasana. And in the other sutta, even after this whole discussion, Satchika in some places asks questions which are a little rude to the Buddha, like a little impudent, you could say, and a little provocative, like he saw that other ascetics were practicing extreme austerities and he saw that the Buddha and the bhikkhus were not practicing these extreme austerities. So he had the idea that the Buddha and the bhikkhus might be developed in mind but that they're not, he uses the expression, that they're not developed in body he had the idea that development in body, kaya bhavana, means that one is practicing extreme austerities. And so he seems to have thought that the other ascetic groups might have been more worthy than the Buddha because they're more extreme in their practices. Then the Buddha gives another definition or another explanation of the expression developed in mind and developed in body than that used by Satchika and in effect he uses the word developed in body to mean that one has developed insight or wisdom. Then he gives a long explanation of his past striving for enlightenment to show that he also had practiced all of these austerities, taken them to their limit and saw that they didn't lead to enlightenment.
And so he explains how he discovered the middle way. Then still, Satchika, even at the end of that sutta, he hears that the Buddha, he's heard that the Buddha takes a nap sometimes in the hot season. So he says, I've heard it said that the recluse Gotama sleeps during the day. Some call that the way of a deluded man. (laughs) 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 Then the Buddha says, it is true, Satchika, that sometimes during the hot season, when I've returned from my alms round after I've taken my meal, I fold my robe in four and lie down on my right side, aware of the time for rising, which means you might lie down, even maybe take a little just five or ten minute snap, uh, a ten, ten minute nap, just that much amount of time. When he says that, I do not consider that to be a deluded man's uh, abiding. But though, then he says, if any, if one were to say of anybody that a being free from delusion has arisen in the world, it is of me that one would say that. Again, this seems a little boastful. But since the Buddha is free from any kind of conceit of I am, he can make such statements. Then he said, what I call the deluded, the abiding of a deluded person is one in whom the defilements that cause delusion and that lead to birth and death and to suffering, one in whom those defilements have not been abandoned has the abiding of a deluded person. But one who has abandoned those defilements which lead to birth, aging, and death, that is one who has the abiding of one free from delusion. Okay, so I think we should stop here. And this, today's talk will be the last talk in this series. But I'll continue again in a few months, maybe after the Singhalese New Year, because I have some other work that has to be done very urgently, and I have to give my full attention to that now. If you want to be sure to know again, if you leave self-addressed postcards, maybe with Mr. Kalwata or Mr. Sain Nayaka, then when I am ready to resume the, the class, then those will be sent out to you. Maybe also mentioning, well, the suttas that I will discuss will be here. We'll make photocopies of them. They've told me that this is the hundredth talk that I've given in this. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
donate.